What up, what up, what up, what up? Welcome to another episode of Unk View. As always, I'm joined by some clown who likes to tell people we're related, but we're really not. <laughs> How are you today, sir? Uh, I'm all, I'm all right. I'm having I'm having an okay weekend. Okay, just okay. Uh, just okay. Just okay. Do you miss the Not riots? Like spectacular. In this in the Stephen King novel of life we're all now living through. I don't know if you can have a great weekend. You know. Do you miss the looting and the the arson? Well, I didn't participate in any of it, but as a background to daily life, it was rather exciting. I'm sure it was. I can only imagine. But I'm, uh, I I'm just only... I'm just chilling in the in the tiny apartment. You know, it's like there's no real difference between weekend and weekday, especially when you have like projects that you're working on. Right. I feel like all I do is work during the weekends on this stuff. And then during the weekdays, I just work at the normal job. And then that's just it. But I mean, there's nothing else to do. So it's impossible to enjoy life during the coronavirus. So you might as well just continue working on stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Continue not enjoying life, working on stuff, trying to prepare for whatever the world is going to be like after COVID-19. Right. And well, after COVID-19 and then after the nuclear holocaust that will follow closely on the heels of that. Boy, I hope not, but it really seems like uh, a lot of people are talking about that. Are they? So, I just made that up. I mean, Sam Harris just talked about it on his uh, most recent— Did he really? Uh, yeah, in one of his most recent episodes. On well, what? why was he talking about it? Well, he interviewed 90—this uh, guy is 92, but he—I mean, he's still sharp. And he was the basically nuclear tactical advisor to— um, every president after Kennedy, and he was in, instrumental in the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. And he wrote a book where he was saying, "This is really like people have stopped paying attention to the fact that nuclear weapons are really, really a, a constant threat, and we really ought to be paying attention to that because there's a number of. I mean, Sam Harris has an interest in this. There isn't not to, not to give you more reasons to keep you up at night, but the United States has almost, I mean, detonated on accident its own nukes on its own soil. And that's really the greater threat than actual nuclear war, although that is apparently also still a threat. There's a, um, a whole book and a documentary made about it called Command and Control. The state of West Virginia almost detonated one of its own nukes outside of Morgantown. It would have wiped out a 200-mile area of people. And it was just a right, complete, but, that, but that's just West Virginia. <laughs> yeah, right. That was it's a complete accident that it didn't. I mean, there's literally one switch on this nuclear missile that had been in the other position would have caused it to have gone off. Wow. And the big problem is that, especially at that time, and really still kind of at this time, it it's the case that the systems that we have. However, a lot of the computer systems we have in place are so old that they can't tell the difference between an accident and an on-purpose attack. Uh. And they go through this in Sam Harris's podcast, and it truly is like, man, I do not want to be in any major city. <laughs> like, I just really don't want to be in any area where this could like possibly be affected because it just really seems. I mean, it it just it's too much for comfort, to be honest. Yeah, not but, to ups, not to upset this podcast, which had a rather lighthearted concept when we went into it with, with like the 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 specter of nuclear annihilation. But 
All right. Well, you know, there's our goal here for you to always uplift and give you just <laughs> an optimistic view of things. And so, uh, yeah, as Brennan just alluded, we for once we actually planned something. And even when we plan things, we can't carry it out. So kudos to us. But what we are going to talk about today, unless Brennan would like to bring us down with some other news of impending annihilation of America <laughs> and or West Virginia and the 200-mile radius around it, we're going to talk about, um, actually, we're not going to talk about anything. We're going to answer some questions. We've, you know, we've been at this podcast now for, it's approaching four years, and we took a hiatus in the middle of it. Brendan referenced this at one point not long ago when uh, we just stopped doing it for a time. Um, really, there was no specific reason for that. We just kind of did it or kind of didn't do it. And now that we're back, uh, both predating all the way back to when we did start and now, we get questions from people. And so we thought we'd answer some of those in an attempt to not talk about nuclear annihilation, but somehow it found its way into the show anyway. Like, you know, we, we put up barriers to keep things out and somehow they got through anyway. We'll have to take those back to Home Depot after the show. <laughs> those but barriers? Those barriers that were clearly not working as intended. So we're going to start off. This question comes from Lisa in Los Angeles. This question is for you, few. And the question is this. Name all the places you've lived, which one, and which one was your favorite, and why? Yeah, I think any listener to the show knows that my favorite is, is Paris that I've lived. That place is on, uh, just amazing. Um, but I've lived in a bunch of places. I've lived in Paris, lived in Edinburgh, Scotland, Edinburgh, uh, lived in Metro Detroit area, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Northwest Lower Michigan and the Manistee area, Chicago and Boulder, Colorado. And uh, I think, I mean, Paris is just the best for all the reasons that somebody would assume it would be for. It's uh, culturally interesting. The people are unique. The city is amazing. It's like an outdoor museum. It's a physically beautiful place. I mean, it is, you know, people call it an outdoor museum. There's a concept that's invented, uh, that was invented in Paris. Um, there's a word for it in French. It's called flaneur, flaneur, F-L-A-N-N-E-U-R. And a flaneur is a person who just wanders around in a city. And because in the city of Paris, it's so beautiful. I mean, it's just like, it's it's just gorgeous, man. Like you just wander around and you're like, oh, here's a, you know, 400 year old building that has a plaque outside that talks about historically some significant thing happened here and the architecture is gorgeous. And it's it just from block to block. I mean, there's no blocks in Paris, but from, you know, area of the city from street to street, it's like you can pass, you know, these just a number of buildings and outdoor sculptures and statues that are historically relevant. You can just see these things walking around. Um, you know, and especially because all of the cathedrals there are, uh, they're just open. You know, you can just wander in really? and not have to. I mean, this includes Notre Dame when it was operating. Wow. Before, you know, the roof burnt down. You don't have to pay money to get into these places. They're just open. They're run by wow. the Catholic Church. And uh, many people do donate, but you don't have to. You can just walk in and look around. And I mean, m much, I mean, there's just famous artworks that are just out you know, there's Rodin sculptures that are just in the city. There are beautiful wow. architecture all over the place. It, it really is kind of mesmerizing because you can walk around all day and feel like you don't, you, you, 
you know, you just you were constantly entertained by just witnessing what the city was kind of doing around you. That's really cool. It is really cool. It it it, it feels here's the only thing that it's almost like a false sense of life purpose in a way. I mean, this was the only thing that it began to eat away at me was like it requires so much as an American, it requires so much work to be in that city. It's a lot like New York in a way where it just it costs a lot of money to be there. Paris is cheaper than New York, but it it costs a lot of money to be there. It it, it takes a lot of work to get there. And you know, if you're not going as a tourist and you're attempting to live there, it it's like I had to go to two different appointments at the French consulate. They for, they they have you appear in person and you have to like explain to them what you're going to go do in their country uh-huh. and why you want to go live there and they have to make sure that you have some independent means of income or how much money do you have in the bank. They, they require you to, to go through like a lot, it just, you know, a lot of your personal information and cause they want to make sure you're not just going to show up and then become a drain on the system. Like, and, a, like in America where we invite everyone to do exactly that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically. Um, so, so there's, you know, I mean, there's, they, they are careful and it takes a lot of work you know, I had to fly from Boulder, you know, Denver, all the way to Chicago to go p- appear in person at the consulate. Um, and they call out of time. It's like you have an appointment at eleven fifteen on Friday morning, and if you're not there, they call out your name. And if you're not there, then you got to wait another over. three months before they can give you another, wow, you know, appointment. And so, so that's what I did. And it, when you're there, because of that, so just the background and the reason I'm explaining that is because of all of that reason. When you're there, it feels like you've achieved something. It feels uh. like you're like, oh my god, I've I worked so hard to get here, and now I'm here in this like beautiful city, the city of lights, where, you know, I'm I'm, you know, having a a drink. I'm like drinking a bottle of wine with some of my expat friends on the Seine River, you know, just upstream from Notre Dame. We can see this beautiful, you know, thirteen hundred year old. 1500 year old work of art that's just existing over over here and meeting people from all over the world and and because it's such a destination city it's like you can go out any given night at any kind of place in the city and run into people like i told you i had this i met macaulay culkin when i was in the city that's right i forgot you met him you met him in paris yeah and it you can just run into people who are just famous people because they're around. I mean, it's a city. The city's a destination. One of the top destinations on the whole planet. I mean, literally right. the number one tourist destination on the whole planet is the Eiffel Tower. Is it really? So, I yeah, know that. it's the number one tourist destination on the whole planet. And it, it's f- just fascinating to me because, like, you, you it fe- because of this reason, it feels like you've achieved something, but you're not really doing anything. You're getting drunk next to old things, basically. That's cool. With it is cool, but it's only cool. But after a while, I started thinking, you know, I'm not really doing I'm not like achieving anything like it's cool that I was able to do this. And I, I appreciate it. I, obviously, I would I would I would not have it the other way. I would obviously I would choose that. Paris is your favorite place. You loved it. And uh, and you'd go back. Oh, I would totally go back. And you've been a bunch of places. So I think that adds some credibility to your opinion because, you know, you've you've lived in. I don't. Did you list all these things earlier? I don't, I don't recall you mentioning all of them. New York? Did you? New York, Chicago. Yeah, New York. I think that New York is the only one I forgot to mention. 
is that I've, I've also lived in New York. I mean, the access in Paris is amazing. It's similar to New York in that way. You, you, you've got great jazz music. You've got amazing restaurants. You have, you know, world-class museums. I mean, the Louvre is maybe the greatest museum on the planet. And right. it's just in downtown Paris. And for the price of a ticket, which is like, I don't know, 25 bucks or something, you can go in and spend the whole day with the greatest, some of the greatest works of art, you know, throughout all of human yeah, history. Absolutely. Time. Absolutely. Yeah. That's something I'd love I mean, to see. I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing. You know, I mean, the only thing that's shitty about it is the tourists to be perfectly honest. Right. Well, those loud Americans. Uh, well, actually it's more loud Chinese at this point. Really? It's, uh, yeah. Chinese tourists have, have it is no longer the ugly American tourist, although that tourist absolutely still exists. Mm -hmm. It's more so the uglier, louder, more annoying Asian tourist. Wow. And yeah. Yeah. That's so we're being, that shocks me. yeah, it doesn't really, is it, it shocking to you? It is because when I think of, you know, all the stereotypes that populate my head, Number one on that list. And there's it, a bunch. Oh, there are. There are. And I, I'm being totally facetious, of course, because, you know, we can't we can't make observations about things anymore because they're automatically racist, even though we may actually have statistically valid reasons for feeling the way that we do. For example, if you were to uh, if you were to encounter a rattlesnake and Let's assume, let's assume you encountered 20 rattlesnakes, just randomly, and none of them bit you. Would that make them less dangerous? Ooh, that's an interesting question. Actually, yeah, that, no, that, that's, not even, that's not even really what I meant to say. What I meant to say, although I think that is an interesting point to ponder, but if, for example, I, I, throughout the course of my life, I've had 200 personal interactions with I'll just say, I'll just randomly choose Japanese people. Sure. And out of 200 incidents, 199 of them, I found the people to be completely polite, respectful, courteous, quiet, very much aware of what's going on around them in terms of how their behavior affects other people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, sure. Would I be a racist to say? But that one time that you met a samurai. <laughs> right. But, but you, I mean, I, I'm trying to make a serious point, actually, which is all of the opinions I have are based on stuff like that. I don't just, sure. I don't just think something just because I want to think that or because somebody told me to. And honestly, the top of my list, based upon just personal experiences in my life, and I've had a whole bunch with almost every ethnic group you can name, is that Asian people of all persuasion, all Asian persuasion people, they tend to be very polite people. Yeah, they're super polite. I mean, is that not your, is that not your experience? No, it, no, so it's funny that you say that because they are very polite people. So, it, it, okay, so given that stereotype or that experience that you've had with them, so I don't even know if I would call that a stereotype, to well, be that, honest. And that's, I, I guess that's, that's kind of the point I'm making is that these days, to have an opinion about a group of people is just, automatically and categorically labeled as racist in my sure. I, I, we've just reached that place where you can't even comment you can't even like what i just said if not for the fact that i very specifically chose asians because nobody gets offended when you talk about them and secondly i said something positive so it's like i was very careful in what i just said there just sure. because of the fact that that's the times we're living like i can say that 
but I can't say, you know, I can't say anything negative and I can't talk about certain groups at all. Yeah, I mean, barely you can even say that. But let's let's let me just get back to the the, yeah. the the point about the 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 ugly Chinese tourists. There's, dude, there are. There, it's, I mean, so your experience, I think, is right. Is that by and large, I think, same thing. Is like every Asian. I mean, I had a bunch of Asian friends in high school. You know, I was in diversity council. They're all extremely polite people, and especially if they're from, if they're boaters, if they're straight from the country, they're extremely polite, and they have really high standards of etiquette for their children. Mostly, uh-huh. um, you know, I, I that was my experience also. However, I think that for some reason, when it comes to tourists, there's the annoying Asian tourist who does a handful of things that the annoying American tourist doesn't do. Are they loud? No. American tourists, loud. American people, loud. Very loud. Like just talk loud, yep. speak loud, enunciate everything they say and do, yep. have like dumb, loud observations and ask dumb questions that don't yeah. make sense. Like I was walking through Edinburgh once and I heard this girl go, I don't think this was in Harry Potter. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, just what, what? Like, I don't, just to the world. Like, I don't even know who she was talking to. She just <sighs> announced it. Like, that's the kind of comparison like a, a, an American tourist would loudly make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Japanese tourist. Asian tourists, not Japanese, I shouldn't say Japanese, mostly Chinese tourists, um, but Asian tourists, what do they do? They get together in a, in a group, a gaggle, a, um, uh, a little group of them, and there's always like 10, and they are very quiet, but what do they do? They have 100 cameras on all, everybody has a camera. They've got a GoPro, they've got a, their phone out, they've got their phone on a stick, they're taking selfies, they have you know, camera in one hand, other phone GoPro in the other hand. It's like, there's like literally, it's almost like there's, they just have to capture all of the reality that's happening around them at any given time. It's like, it's like they're that. reporting, I've literally it's like China sent them as a, as a little spy unit and they have to just capture all the possible reality that's happening so they can later represent it, you know, for, I don't know, plans or something like it just it doesn't like it's like they're going to get back to, you know, Guan Guangzhou and have to create a little diorama of the entire place that they were at or something like it's it's I, and by the way, this is not that much of an exaggeration. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, 10 Chinese tourists and a little group and 25 cameras between between them. No, I've observed like, that. I've observed that as well. I have seen that with my own eyes, like in New York. Oh yeah, and it, it, then there's not only that, but they 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 all want to take selfies in front of things, and mm. they all want to take these very particular like like meme pose Asian selfies that like we don't have any experience of for some reason. Like pe- like people in the U.S. we have meme selfies, whatever. Like. Uh, planking or that was popular years ago. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Like there's different Asian ones that like, like the, like the one that everybody understands, like the jumping with like the peace signs in each hand. And then like, you're kicking your legs behind you. That's like a, yeah, but they'll do that next to these like amazing works of political, historical and religious art that people have like reverence for. Like the best example is I was in, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome at the Vatican and there's the statue of St. Peter and there's two Asian girls like jumping next to it doing that pose and I'm like what the fuck like this just like it just seems so inappropriate to like do this here 
And, you know, there's people who work their whole lives to get them, you know, Catholics who are like they all they want to do is now that now that they're retired, they're going to take thousands of dollars that they've worked their whole lives, you know, in, in in Wisconsin on the farm making so they can go to the Basilica of St. Peter, which they've dreamed about since they were in their 20s and got married. And now there's like some Asian tourists who's just like. T- taking this picture <laughs> like yeah, it, I get it. there's something about that that just seems really like there that kind of stuff happens all over the place it happens at um versailles it happens at the louvre it happens at you know it's just a lot of that kind of thing and and by the way just to be clear it's not just you know asian tourists who are this kind of uh who do these kinds of things there's you know bad german tr- german tourists there's bad eastern europeans of course there's bad americans but but the the mo the you know the the more starkly and obviously annoying one lately is these is these ugly Asian tourists who get away with all this kind of stuff and they cause problems like in Iceland, um, something like there was in 2018, uh, Chinese tourist drivers were responsible. I'm I'm gonna butcher this fact, but like Chinese tourist drivers were responsible for like 35 percent of all motor collisions. What like. Yeah, it was like it's like an outrageous number of the amount of car accidents that happened over the whole country of Iceland where it was a 35 percent of them was a Chinese tourist behind the wheel. Wow. Yeah. I, it, look, I mean, that fact is it might be wrong. It might, it might be I mean, it might be way lower than that it might be like 15 percent or something. But it doesn't matter what it is. It's like that's a lot it compared is. to the native population, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. All right. I don't know. Is it? <laughs> well, well uh, based upon the number of people who've hung up on this podcast in the past seven minutes. Already? <laughs> you know, I don't know. We'll have to find out. We'll have to find out if we have anybody left at the end. All right. So uh, we've devoted uh, about 25 minutes to the first question. At this pace, we're going to be at this for a while. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So now let's move on. And uh, uh, you got a, you got a question? Well, this one, yeah, this one is, this is from Casey in Boston. Question for Unk. Is it true you were once named the number one Michigan State basketball player in the world? <laughs> no, I was not ever that. Yeah, I like that. If so, what was that based on and how did that come about? <laughs> I'm guessing what he meant to say was uh, fan because I certainly, I did go to Michigan State. I was not a player, not in anything close to a player. I, uh. I barely started on my intramural team, which in, which featured six players, but uh, <laughs> but I was I was at one point named the the number one Michigan State basketball fan in the world, and in fact, uh, Brendan experienced that whole thing with me, which was really cool. In fact, for me, that was probably one of my top, you know, like three or five experiences in life, to be honest with you. But uh, uh, I mean, it was amazing. It was, and I like this question because we can both comment on it. But how it came about, and you know, I, I actually love to tell people that that you know about that that fact about me that that really did happen. But the reality of it is is nowhere near as good as that that maybe sounds because the reason I was chosen was because in the uh, the year that I was named that, Michigan State went to the Final Four. That was 2015, and along the journey to the Final Four, which, of course, if you're a college basketball fan, you know that that basically starts. It's the whole season. Plus, in the Big Ten, there's a the as is, as is true for many basketball conferences, they have a tournament at the end of the season. 
blah, blah, blah. But the point is, Michigan State was having uh, an unexpectedly good year. They weren't actually anticipated to do much that year. And is as a hallmark of a Tom Izzo coached team, they always overachieve. And in fact, he was named the greatest coach in the history of the NCAA basketball tournament by a wide margin. Um, wow. Th- that's true. A- about a year or maybe six months after we were there. But in any event, the reason I was chosen was because I was just posting like an idiot on Facebook every time Michigan State played. You know, I changed my 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 profile, my, my profile, yeah, you know, my profile pick and my background pick on Facebook. I would change it to some specific Michigan State theme, and yeah. I, you know, I was commenting on everything that was happening and posting photos and just. Well, writing. you were you were also you were also ruthless with other like teams, man. You would post some some. Oh yeah, I mean, like your your knowledge of the facts in terms of like stats and comp- the comparisons you would make where people would be like, oh man, it's great that I'm just going to pick out of thin air, like, oh, the University of Michigan, blah, blah, blah. And then you would reply with like a, you know, actually, that's not that impressive. Let me break this down for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, at one time, my knowledge was pretty good. And in fact, it's you know up, probably up until that point. And since then, it's come down a lot. But so anyway, I was just posting all this stuff. And one day, and I was at the gym working out, and I got a text message, and it said, you've been named the number one Michigan State basketball fan in America or the world, whatever, and uh, would you like to attend the Final Four with yourself and three people you can bring free of charge with a whole bunch of extras and surprises thrown in? And uh, at the time, I just re- I, I just did not believe it was real because – this text was being received. I don't recall what day it was. I want to say Tuesday. Tuesday of the week we were going to be doing it. So basically there was no notice given. It was just like, hey, do you want to do this? Because if so, you got to leave in like two days. And so for the first hour, I'll say, I thought it was fake. And mm. and I ended up calling. Um, uh, I called Tracy Lorenz, who was one of the people that we all you know that went with us because Tracy was one of my best friends in college, and I read the text to him, and I said, do you think this could possibly be be real? And we talked about it a little bit, and then just decided, like, uh, what did I have to lose by replying to it? So I did, obviously. And uh, anyway, that started an exchange, and long story short, it was was totally legitimate. They offered to to fly us in. Literally, the cost of this, and again, you were there, dude, so you can verify this. The cost of this was completely irrelevant. These people would just do whatever we asked, and it's, I'll give one example, and that is this experience was over. We literally were, we came back from the championship game of that year, 2015, um, which was Wisconsin versus Duke, a great game won by a la- on a last-second shot by a Duke player. And uh, and it was a real letdown, as we, if you recall, walking home, from the from this was in Indianapolis. We were walking home from Lucas Oil Arena to uh, the hotel where we were staying, which is a beautiful hotel, really nice. And it was like this thing's over. I mean, the game, you know, the championship game is over. We got to go home tomorrow. And this once in a lifetime experience, which lasted, you know, a whole weekend, like four days, you know, like Friday, oh, it was crazy Friday through yeah. Monday, Friday through Tuesday, actually, and. Uh, it was just kind of depressing because it's like, okay, there's no more events to look forward to. And we, they treated us to all these crazy things like backstage passes with Imagine Dragons and got to play uh, got to play 
Horse with Shaquille O'Neal, which was some. I, I just looked at some videos that I just randomly found the other day of you and Shaq. Oh my God, dude, it's, that photo! It's like oh, there's a. I mean, I got I got a ton of photos. I got a bunch of video too that I don't think you've ever seen. But in any in any, I way, think I I just want to say this real quick because I think that one of the coolest things about that is and, and about that guy. Period. And I think about this every once in a while a because guy. it was such a mind bending experience. Was like. When you see Shaq, I think my brain turned into jelly. Like the guys, he's so big. He like creates like this this like they like they talk about Steve Jobs having like a reality disruption field. It, that's kind of how it felt like when Shaq just appeared. Is you're like, oh my god. No, I agree. It's, it it like it almost was like all normal rules were like suspended around just being around this guy. Like I, I agree. He, it was so weird. Like, I think it's bizarre because it was like some kind of time dilation. We probably spent, what, like 20 minutes with him, if that. I mean, oh, no, 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 no. It was a lot longer than that. It was probably 40. Wow. Well, if you consider but this is what I mean. It was like a time dilation. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. Um, and you're right. I mean, he, he, his presence is, you know, I, I thought I had encountered like larger than life personalities before. I had not. And I, I mean, I met some. I've met some famous people, but Shaq is on a different planet. I mean, in term, he's just yeah. He's he's so big. He's physically so large. And you think you have some ideas to how big he is. You don't. He's just that much bigger than than anybody thinks he is. He's just like a giant. And we there were other professional basketball players who were there while we were playing with Shaq. And in fact, one another one of Michigan State's greatest players of all time, Steve Smith, was there. And and I talked to him, and I got his kid involved in the game with us, which was another just a, you know random thing that happened. But it was just an amazing experience. We had a wonderful time. We also went to the—they took us to the Indy 500 and the College Basketball Hall of Fame, and we had dinner at these incredible restaurants. We ate one of the meals we had at a table next to Mitt Romney. And Oh, yeah. That's I mean, right. All yeah, these Tracy people. walked up to congratulate Mitt on being such a great guy when he was in the middle of eating dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think he did. And and then just all the people we saw random. I mean, like everywhere you looked, there was somebody that you knew. I mean, some famous person. It's like right over there and right over there and right over there. Oh, yeah, The Rock, Dennis uh, Leary. No, not Dennis Leary. Pardon me. Uh, Dennis Miller. That's who I was talking about. Sean Dennis Carpenter. Leary, probably not even a hundred, you know, not a th wouldn't be a thousand miles within a basketball game like that. But yeah, yeah, I Dennis Miller was there, like us all these yeah. crazy people, and and it was just yeah. an awesome, awesome, awesome experience. So, uh, so the the real point I was trying to make there, and I think I got way off point, was the fact that all I really did was just I happened to be, you know, posting at a crazy level at just the right time, and. Um, and then, in fact, interestingly, is that we were the only contingent, we meaning me, Brendan, my friend Tracy Lorenz from college, and then another friend, Sean Carpenter, who's a, a, someone I met you know, through, uh, in other ways, but just a great dude, huge sports fan. And um, we were the only group that had four people. The other, the other teams that were there at the tournament, uh, the two that were there, there was a Duke uh, group, which was just a mother and a daughter who were awesome. We loved them. Ronnie and her Still mom. friends with them. Yeah. In Still fact, I saw, them. I saw you comment on uh, the mom's post, like on Facebook, like yesterday or the day before. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then, um, and then there was a, a mother and son pair from the university of Kentucky. And then they couldn't find anybody that qualified. 
from the University of Wisconsin, which was to this day kind of funny to me that like nobody was saying anything about it from Wisconsin. How's that possible? But my point is that apparently I was doing it even greater than those other two were because we were the only ones that were allowed to bring. I, I brought three people. They only brought one. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. So that, that, that really will. I mean, I think about that randomly just and I just smile. It's like not only that, but the people that were our handlers were just the best people. Brian Nelson, Hannah Woodfin, um, yep. and who's uh, now married to yeah. Ch- uh, Chase Woodfin, who she who she worked with, and we met. Yeah, we met him there. too. Yeah, and he was a great dude. And then uh, finally, uh, Jason Couch, I believe his name was, and he was a great guy. I mean, they just these people were. And imagine this is what these this is what those three people d- do for a living. They literally, and what a cool job, they literally entertain people on behalf of corporate ownership at things like the Final Four, the Masters Tournament, the Super Bowl, the Peach Bowl, and on and on and on, and that's what they do. So basically, they just go to the event, they meet the people like we were, who were just prize winners, and they then just entertain them, and they just, you know, delight them with all these different experiences, and then get this is if all that wasn't enough, and this is probably three or four or five months after the event, I get a I get a a, a letter and it's got a check in it, and the, what? Ch- the check was for the tax impact of the income I had to declare because of all the stuff they gave us because they gave us all this other stuff, all oh, this yeah, other right. swag that was crazy, and then they paid the tax on what they gave us. Which I couldn't believe that, and then oh, then I got a, a freaking forty-two inch TV mailed to me after the fact. Dude, you it was got a just, forty-two. It's just it was like it just never stopped. It, it was it like didn't. a continuous, continuous Christmas. It was, and I mean, again, you were there. It was like they purposely did not tell us what what was going to happen next, so that you know, so that we would be super excited about it, like the Shack thing. We had no idea we were doing that with Shack at all. We thought we were just going. We were just told to be at a certain place at a certain time, which was this convention center, which was next to this the arena, and where they had this expo that's, you know, the NCAA Final Four Expo, which is just full of all the stuff you would think it would be full of, including a number of full-size basketball courts. So we were taken to one of those courts, and there was a dude there with a with a microphone. You know, he's, he's speaking over the PA system, and he's just talking to us and, you know, just kind of like, telling us to go warm up and shoot some baskets. And we're like, what are we doing here? Anyway, it was just really well done in terms of how they surprised us. We never knew what was coming. And it was just one wonderful experience after another. And I will, I will love AT&T, even though I don't, even, <laughs> I don't use their phone service. I will love AT&T forever because they were the ones who ultimately bankrolled the whole thing. Oh, and I never even got to my final point. I never even finished. So I'll say this and then I'm done answering the question. So... In terms of money being no object, we're walking back from the final game. It's over. Tomorrow morning, we got to get up and drive home, and we're going to be super depressed about that. And uh, I don't recall who said it. It might have been me, but I think I said to Brian, who was you know, one of our handlers, I said, hey, would it be okay if we you know, just had a couple of drinks here at the hotel bar before, you know, just as one last thing to do? And he's like, absolutely, do whatever you want. Just, just t- you know, run a tab. I think, I think the tab on that ended up being twelve hundred bucks. I mean, we were all even. I mean, late until late. Oh yeah, running we, up drinks on that man. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, and as a matter of great. fact, as a matter of fact, oh my god, I forgot about this. You, 
You! Oh my God, I can't believe this how bad my memory is. You know what I'm going to say, right? Yeah, you go so, ahead. So, so Brendan, we're at this, this hotel bar, and it's on a Monday night, and it's got to be like, I don't know, midnight, 1 a.m. I mean, it's late. And this waitress comes out who looked underage, very young. She looked very shy. And we're, you know, we're at this huge table with all these people that were, you know, that were part of our group, plus other people who just somehow ended up at the table. I don't even really understand how that happened. But there's a, it's a big table. And this girl looks very, you know, intimidated. Anyway, uh, Brennan ends up in a conversation with her and, you know, gets her number. Just to be clear, it, when you say underage, you mean she doesn't look like she's maybe – she looks like she's maybe 21. Yes. Not like she's like 14. No. no, no, no. Not like your normal shit. <laughs> just, no. just wanted to be clear. Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, skipping ahead, I don't know what the time period was, but – so Brendan meets this person in Indianapolis, and then they get together in Manistee. Yeah, she like I ended up dating her for for like eight months. Oh, like I didn't after know that. that. Yeah, we date. I mean, she would come out to visit me in Chicago when I first moved there. I didn't know that like, either. That yeah, I it, yeah. So I ended up. So that's what I was gonna say is like yeah, that was like the weekend that kept on giving. It was like I ended up dating her for for months, and uh, I mean she's a beautiful she's a beautiful woman like. She was. I mean, she was. She was twenty. Uh, she was twenty-one, but so she wasn't. She was, you know, not underage, but she was like. She looked very young. She's a very. She's so cool. I still talk to her. That's awesome. So you know, like yeah, as you just said, it was like the gift that just kept on giving, and uh, yeah, that was just. I mean, a that just shows you the power of like social media, also though. Oh, absolutely, you know? it does. Absolutely. I mean, that changed my like, entire. It was so crazy. And talk about like, you know, I mean, like I know that we have other questions. Some of these people have asked some questions in here that are about your um, about your sort of beliefs and your your spiritual beliefs uh, in here. But that was like a, a thing that almost it like that came at a time when I was so dep- I had like nothing going for me. <laughs> and that was like a shot in the arm of like, you know what? Good things can happen in life. Absolutely. I think it's part of what I needed to get my act together because that's right after that, not long after, about the next month, I got the job. I started the interview process at at, uh, Vibes and ended up getting hired and moving to Chicago about two months after that happened, which was like, yeah, it was like wild, just the timeline of that because that winter was rough. Yeah, I remember that. And I was really rough. And I remember you making that same observation to me before about how it came at a at a time that you really needed it to happen, you needed to have something break your way. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was just, that was awesome. Yeah, and it's it's clear to me we're not gonna get through a lot of these questions, at least not in no. this, but no, that's like cool, because we can just continue but... on. So let's, let's at least get one more in here. So this question comes from Steve in Miami, and it says, uh, is it true, this, uh, this question is for Brendan, if you if is it true you were offered a professional contract as a comedian when you were 17 years old follow up question uh if you if you were did you if you did i'm sorry if you did not take that contract why yeah sorry i butchered that. uh yeah so my uncle has a better memory of this than i even do probably because to me it was like <laughs> i think was, he thought it was wasn't real I don't think it was I didn't I, I think I didn't I just didn't take it seriously because I right. was 17 years old. The answer to that question is yes, I was an, offered a contract to be represented by at the time Mark Ridley 
and then also was seriously considered to be going on tour with Nick Cannon. Uh, oh yeah, I forgot about that. At that time, and which you know, I mean, that's been interesting. Talk about it, it's funny because <laughs> are you familiar with what's going on with Nick Cannon in the news right now? Uh, well, as you know, I avoid the news as much as I can, but all I think I know is that he said some very you know, controversial, racially charged things, and didn't he lose a job? Yeah, CBS dropped him flat because he said some anti-Semitic stuff um, on his podcast. You know, Nick Cannon at that time was not as famous as he, as he is now. He was still famous, but he was just like a younger comedian. He had put together, you know, he was putting together the Class Clown Tour, and it was going to be a bunch of young comics and he, you know, he wanted me on it. I guess they sent my, I sent my tape in and, you know, they liked it and they wanted to include me on the tour. And I, you know, I ended up instead going to college to answer your question, Casey, that's why I didn't take it as I was like, well, time to go get a degree in philosophy because that'll really serve me in my career. Right. Uh, and, and that's really why I didn't go on the tour and why I didn't go, you know, why I didn't take the contract from, from Mark Ridley. But, the yeah, Nick Cannon, just let me talk about this for a second. It's kind of interesting because like, you know, in the Hollywood, the Hollywood Reporter had an op ed piece recently by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yep. And he mentioned specifically that he's like the the black community apparently has a lot of anti-Semitism, which I didn't know was a thing. I didn't, um, I didn't, I didn't know that that was like a culturally a thing, I suppose. And he was, uh, I mean, the, the Hollywood Reporter, it was a very interesting article. It was, he was basically criticizing, it wasn't just like criticizing the black community for that specifically, it was more like the woke movement and the fact that he mentioned that a lot of, you know, the black community has been known to have uh, anti-Semitic, some beliefs in part of it. So I didn't even know that that was true. I didn't, I just, it was a very interesting article. I would encourage you to read it. It's really level-headed in terms of its critique of sort of the woke movement. And then, uh, and then the next day, Nick Cannon gets dropped flat by CBS for his anti-Semitic remarks on uh, his podcast. And when I I was like, "This is crazy, man!" And I went back and listened to it. It is not even like we like you and I like we joke on this podcast sometimes that we're like, "Oh shit, man, we're closing. Oh, my career is going to be over. Yeah, getting right, over the right. line." Nothing I've said on this podcast is close to the shit that he said on his podcast. Well, that's like, what I—that's that, a way it appeared to me too. I it was like, holy shit, man! That stuff came off like heavy. But anyway, that's—I only wanted to bring that up because Nick Cannon is all this to him. So I missed the opportunity to go on tour with with that Louis Farrakhan, uh, anti-Semite, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I and I'm sad. I really wish I had. I really wish I had. Uh, because you know, clearly, I shared as many of those beliefs. <laughs> well, the bigger deal, the the much bigger deal was the contract, though. I mean, that to me, I mean, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying to have a professional representation. And for those who, you know, most people probably have no idea who Mark Ridley is, because why would you? But Mark Ridley is the owner of Ridley's Comedy Castle, which is the truly the only comedy club in the state of Michigan that I think is in you know in that particular caliber of comedy club. You know, it's by yep. far the number one club. 
has been for I don't know how long. I mean, a very long time. It's, lo- it's the longest club. I mean, it's a landmark in American comedy. It's the longest club owned by a single owner in in America. In in, in America. Oh, and I people, didn't know that. I mean, Mark Mark knows everybody, and everybody knows Mark. Yep, and that was the point I was. I mean, get let to. me let me put it this way: when I tell people in New York that I started at Mark Ridley's comedy club, they know what I'm talking about. Wow. But for those who may not, um, so that's who Mark Ridley is, and uh, and at the time. I believe at the, at the time that he offered Brendan a contract, one, Brendan had performed one time, and the offer was made after that one performance, and the offer was made, I want to say, 30 seconds after that one performance. So basically, Mark was in the audience, saw Brendan perform, and ironically, I was the MC of that show. I was the host of the show. I was the one who introduced him, and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I was the reason really why he was there in the first place, because I just knew he had the ability to do it. I convinced him to try it. He really didn't want to at first. I don't think. I don't think you just said, yeah, I'll do that. But you, yeah. did, you did do Straight it. Straight up. You did do it. Yeah. And that's that was the result after one performance was, hey, I'm going to offer you a contract. And Ridley only had one other comedian under contract. So obviously, I don't know what Ridley's thinking was in, or thinking is in terms of only representing one or two people. But... It needs to be said because that just tells you how impressed he obviously was with Brendan. And and it's funny because at the time when I found out that you'd been offered that, um, I don't know who told me if it was you or one of your parents, but I just remember I was just floored. Like, that is incredible. I mean, what an opportunity. I mean, it didn't even enter my mind that you wouldn't do it. Yeah. Because I recognized it for what it was, which I can understand you at age 17 might not. And yeah, I was kind of like, it's so weird because I feel like for a long time, I was really like, I don't want to say I was one foot in, one foot out on stand up because I wasn't, I loved, I've always loved performing on stage. But I think that I was kind of like, I just, especially at that time in my life, but then for years afterwards, I was kind of like, eh, I don't know, kind of about anything. Right. Which, which is just the worst. I mean, like that attitude is just so lame. Uh, just for it's it just kill it kills ambition it like but I think that's probably when I, I I barely even remember this which is shows you kind of how little it kind of registered on my radar at the time yeah I think you and were now just too I want to go back in time and just kick myself yeah but I think again you were just too young I mean it's there's just so many things that you know you just figure out later in life and sometimes the difference between what you perceive at age seventeen versus what you perceive at even age eighteen or nineteen or twenty can be radically True. different. I think it just yeah, it just came too early for you, which I hear is mm. a common thing with you. But in any event, uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so th- that, uh, that, that's, a, that's just a really interesting chapter in your life for me is, yeah. you know, because the perspective I had on it at the time, which was basically, this is what at the time I really wanted to do with my life. I thought I was doing okay. Um, and here you come along a li- just a little bit later, and your performance is so clearly head and shoulders above mine that you, you know, that you you really you killed my ambition, and uh, and more power to you because again, hey, you know, talent is ta- whatever talent is. But here I am looking at you, and it's like, wait, you you were offered a contract like that's what I'm dreaming to do, and you were offered that after one one performance which lasted five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> what? And, oh, and, and, and it wasn't and, even my best one. And you one. were so you were just so lackadaisical about it. Like, oh, what? Well, yeah, uh, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, I guess I'm thinking we'll about see. it. 
I think no, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the next uh, six years and get my degree in philosophy, which I won't actually use it ever professionally. And um, oh yeah, I mean it's it was what a terrible financial going to college was a horrible financial decision. For well, me. when your uh, when your philosophy's major or when your major is philosophy, philosophy. Yeah. you definitely increase the odds of that just a smidge. <laughs> See, but I say yeah, that because I did the exact opposite as you, which is, yeah. you know, you you followed your heart, which I really respect. I did just the opposite. I followed my brain, which is I didn't I, I changed my major uh, from what I should have done to accounting because I thought it was going to be a, a good ticket to an income, and I was right about that. But yeah. at the cost of my soul, so I think yeah. I would definitely go back and change that. But. Uh, uh, did you have anything you want to add to that answer? Because uh, I think we should probably cut it off right now. Because uh, I yeah no 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 I think that's good. I think that covers yeah that that answer just to answer that question from Steve. Yeah, basically I was offered that, and you know didn't have the eyes to see it really, which is again totally understandable. And hey, you know what life life is long and there's it's crazy how opportunities come about. You know they typically come about when you're not looking for them. They just sort of yeah. happen somehow. Like you weren't looking for that when it happened. Um, it's true. So you just never know when lightning is going to strike. He said, as literally lightning just struck outside. Struck outside. Can you hear it? <laughs> Did you hear it? Oh, no, 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 I didn't hear it. Uh, like there's a major storm happening right here. And in fact, there have been three or four different weather alerts that... That have all come through yeah, during this. Yeah, because I think you oh, probably no. heard them. <laughs> I think you probably heard them. But, uh, well, we like to, I'd like to thank Lisa... Steve and Casey, if my memory is correct, for sending in those uh, those questions. Those are great questions. We didn't, we've never done this before, so we had no idea how long it would take to answer a given question. But in our usual style, it's about twenty minutes per question. So at this pace, the good news is at this pace we'll never run out. So yeah, uh, we can't keep going. <laughs> so let us know what you think about this format. We've been talking about doing it for a while just because um, you know uh, we thought you might find it interesting. Let us know what you think. But uh, uh, we always appreciate your listening in, and we hope that you're doing as well as you can be, as you can be doing during these, you know, tumultuous times in which we live. Sign uh, us off. Thank you guys so much. In order to weather the, uh, the 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 coronavirus situation better, I have a game for you. Anytime you hear someone say "in these unprecedented times," please take a shot. Oh my God, dude, I'd be dead by probably 5 p.m. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Stay safe.